So today I wanted to go back over some of the things we've been talking about for the last three weeks. And um, I did invite those who were here last week to consider practicing a little bit based on last week's talk. So I'll do a little review and people can share. If people did do some practice, I definitely put a reminder on my phone to be looking for equanimity this week. And I did have some multiple occasions of losing the balance of my mind. Some were very, very cool, um, good learning experiences and great opportunities for practice. And they were kind of fun too, because I thought of you all, because as it was happening, I was thinking, oh, this moment is so annoying and I can share it next week. And I was thinking of that at the same time. So uh, it's always good to be proactive in uh, preparing for this kind of stuff. So I'll talk just a little bit about what we've been talking about, uh, get us back all on the same page, and then we'll we'll do some sharing and we'll see how far we get as far as the other uh, enlightenment factors go. So the last few weeks, we've been talking about sustaining qualities of heart and mind. We've been talking about how do we take things like equanimity and mindfulness? Um, how do we take investigation? How do we take these things, concentration? How do we take these things and move them from a momentary experience to a hourly, a daily? How do we move it into a lifestyle? How do we take mindfulness from one moment into the next moment? How do we string these things together? And why is it so hard to do that? Because it's very difficult, as we all know. We might be mindful for a moment. We might be mindful for two moments. And then the mind just runs away. So how do we move from being intentionally mindful to living a life in mindfulness? How do we live a life in mindfulness day to day? How do we bring equanimity into these difficult to reach places when we're triggered by somebody or we just had enough of something and our pet peeves, you know, give us that stinging moment where we lose the balance of our mind? How do we to act continuously out of these positive heart mind spaces? And this is something the Buddha was very well aware of. Um, and as we know, as I've talked about before, the enlightenment factors, these heart-mind qualities that the Buddha encourages us to cultivate through our meditation practice on and off the cushion, we are encouraged to cultivate, sustain, and balance these factors. Cultivate, sustain, and to balance. And as I was saying just a minute ago, it's not so hard to take a minute of mindfulness. It's not so hard to generate a moment of compassion. But how do we continue it? The sustaining is where things get challenging. And that's where it helps to have tips and tricks and to talk as a sangha and as a group to share in our practice with each other. How do we do that? What works for you? How do you sustain mindfulness during the day? How do you sustain equanimity? So this is what we've been talking about. Last week it was equanimity. The week before that we did investigation and mindfulness maybe. Um, and then the week before that we talked more about balance. Um, and so the last couple weeks, if you weren't around, check out those Dharma talks. They all string together as far as this subject goes. So there's a couple things I wanted to remind us that I talked about a few weeks ago as to why this is so difficult. Why is it so difficult at times to practice? Like I've been doing this for 25 years and I have a very serious practice every day. I'm on the cushion and have been uh, practically since the beginning. And yet this week I had multiple moments where I was not equanimous and I was aware of it. So why is it that I can practice so much and still have moments when I'm thrown? So there's three things just to remember about cultivating these habits of heart and mind. First of all, it's important to remember that we are going against the stream, as the Buddha said. We are cultivating new habits in the face of old habits. Our old habit is to get the mind anywhere but present. Our old habit 
is happiness lies outside the self. It, it lies outside the world. So I'm running into the present. I'm running into the past. I'm regretting here. I'm anticipating here. I'm craving. There's aversion. There's expansion this way and contraction this way. But we rarely train the mind or invite the mind just to be here now in the present moment. So we are going against a lifetime of training. And if you're a believer in Buddhist cosmology, lifetimes of training. So doing this is, is not simple, right? We are going against the grain. We're going against the stream, as the Buddha talks about. And that's just important to remember. It allows us to be both persistent and courageous in our practice, but also patient, patient with ourselves, kind with ourselves, because it is important to know that we're changing habits. And changing habits is not an easy thing for humans to do. And when we're doing something so essentially different to the way we've been programmed, and when we live in a culture that celebrates constant craving for something new, something bigger, something grand, then inviting the mind to stay put is really counterintuitive for, for how we live. So give yourself a break, pat yourself on the back for trying, and remember that we are going against the stream here, and it is authentically challenging to change these habit patterns. And no matter how often you practice, until those habits are really, really established, the mind's going to do what it's going to do. It's going to go into aversion. It's going to get angry at somebody. It's going to get angry with ourselves. And we need to just be awake and aware to that and give ourselves some credit, some love, and some kindness. And remember that we're doing our best with these types of things. Another thing I had mentioned a few weeks ago is this psychological concept in Western psychology called extinction. And it's really important. When I was in graduate school and we studied behavioral psychology, um, when we studied extinction... I really was thinking of meditation and it really helped me to understand why is it that following a very good meditation or several weeks of really disciplined practice, all of a sudden my mind, I can't find my breath to save my life. Like, why is that the case? Why does really good practice follow really distractive mind, right? Why is it that I can be really mindful on the cushion in the morning and then I go to work and I'm, I'm grumpy with someone or something really small agitates me? How is it that that can happen so quickly? The concept of extinction says that when a habit pattern is about to give way, when a habit pattern is essentially ready to let go, it will push back. It will fight to stay alive, essentially. So what happens in the mind, in our neural pathways, what happens in the heart and mind is that as we're developing these new patterns, the old patterns literally take a stand to reinvent themselves, right? They want to last it's almost like they want to live and they want to stay around. They've been here a while, they're used to being around, and they want to continue doing what they're doing. And so they push back. So it's totally natural that as they're going extinct, that they put up a fight, especially towards the end. So when your practice is going absolutely great, it is perfectly normal that all of a sudden you can't find your breath at all, or you're completely lacking in equanimity. Or if you've been practicing a lot of compassion exercises, all of a sudden you'll get terribly grumpy with somebody. Perfectly normal practice is what the mind and heart do when old habits are starting to fade. So as we practice, when things aren't going very well, we have to remember we're still involved in perfect practice. The old habits are just fighting back and we accept it, we welcome them in, we acknowledge it, and we give ourselves credit where credit is due that we're practicing to become more mature with our awareness, we're looking at becoming more compassionate and more disciplined. We're here to persevere in practice so we can be free from suffering. So we acknowledge, oh, wow, this was a tough sit. I couldn't find my breath. 
totally fine. We get back on the cushion and we keep practicing. So it's important to know that it's normal to have that experience. And that really helped me to understand that when I was having a rough patch in meditation, perfectly good practice. It's just what the heart and mind does when it's trying to uh, learn new things. And the last thing I wanted to remind us is that this is a learning experience and that when we change our habits, we're involved in the learning process, which is trial and error. There's going to be moments where things are really rough and then all of a sudden there's like an explosion of insight and we feel really loving and really centered and really connected and our minds are concentrated and we're just meditation is the best thing in the world and then all of a sudden it's not. And again, perfectly natural for that to be happening. When we learn anything new, there are going to be times where we struggle with it. When you look, a really good example is with like a sporting events. When you look at sports and you see people engaging in an activity that they spend their entire lives training day in and day out, and they are performing at a incredibly high level of perfectionism and integrity and skill, and then they have an off night where, where their skill just doesn't seem to be accessible. No matter how good you are or how much you practice, you're going to have those off days and off weeks where meditation feels like, God, why am I even doing this? This is so challenging. Being with the breath, who would, who would think of doing this? Not worth my time. So remember that no matter how good you are in this kind of thing that we're learning and we're practicing. So this growth and change takes courage and perseverance, but it also takes a lot of patience. Patience is huge in the Dharma. So love yourself and be compassionate towards yourself and remember that you're growing, learning, and changing. And though um, there's going to be days where it's going to be spot on, there's going to be plenty of times where it's going to be very challenging and difficult and we just keep moving through. We don't need to go to war with the mind and we don't need to fall into that self-deprecation. Although I am perfectly good at doing that my own self um, when things aren't going the way I would like. So I totally relate to that. But just wanted to get you some optimism there that this is totally normal when things get challenging uh, for changing habits. This is why we practice so frequently and go on retreats and meet every week and practice together. So the other thing I wanted to just review is just equanimity. I want to just review just a little bit about what it means um, so that when we start sharing here, we are all on the same page with this uh, because it's such an important part of the Dharma. Equanimity is such a big idea in uh, Buddhist psychospirituality, and really understanding how to use it is tremendously helpful to feel better in the world. Uh, lots of studies on equanimity and its correlation to happier, healthier people. Um, people who are happier always talk about having a strong equanimity uh, in their life in some way or another. So it's definitely correlated to happiness. We know this in Western psychology, along with the 3,000 years of um, evidence in Buddhism that equanimity is worth cultivating and worth developing. So the definition of equanimity is equanimity is a loving, accepting, non-judgmental awareness. Equanimity is the letting go part of the path. Letting go or not reacting. This is the non-judgmental part of ourself that we cultivate. Now, oftentimes, equanimity can be seen as being passive. Um, it is passive energetically, but it is not a passive act. Learning to be tolerant of things that irritate us is a very active process. Learning to cultivate equanimity Though it is a passive energy <clears throat> experientially, the engagement of equanimity takes energy. It takes effort. It takes discipline. We really have to pay attention because the mind doesn't want to be tolerant of things it doesn't like. It wants to run away. The natural predilection of the mind is not to say, 
oh my gosh, this person that I know is really bothering me right now. This is an opportunity for awakening. That's not how the mind and heart tend to operate. What it says is, I wish this person would just be quiet or stop annoying me or stop talking to me in this way or stop behaving in a particular way. When the temperature in the room is not to our liking, we don't normally say, wow, I could be mindful of being cold and this could be an opportunity for awakening. Instead, we grab a blanket or a, a cat or a jacket or something and we try to change what we don't like. So we, we like to change what we don't enjoy. We want to be away from the things that we don't tolerate. So equanimity, though passive energetically, takes some energy because the mind wants to run off from anything that irritates us. And those little paper cuts, as we call them, those little things that we don't like throughout the day creates a habit of aversion and a habit of negativity. So we spend so much time generating small little negativities by running away from everything that we don't tolerate, things that we don't like. This aversion that we create becomes a habit. And so when that happens, we can begin to live a life where we're only set out in our day to try and make ourselves comfortable. And the challenge with that is that life is always changing. Life is always changing. We can't control everything. So we're bound to run into something that is aversive. We're bound to run into a circumstance, a person, a condition, a mood that we simply don't like. And so if we don't train ourselves to increase what we call distress tolerance in Western psychology or equanimity in Buddhist psychology, if we don't train our minds to be more welcoming to the little things that agitate us, they turn into a really big negative mood. A lots of dukkha comes from having a day of small things that we've been averse to. And this spreads. It spreads to our relationships, to the relationship we have with ourselves, to our friends, our family, our children. This inability to tolerate distress turns into a really negative mood and then to a habit of really negative moods. This is why equanimity can be so freeing to people when they begin to learn meditation. Because it's not intuitive for us to lean into things that we don't like, especially emotionally, physically. Our tendency is just to run away. So that's equanimity. Equanimity is the letting go of that need for things to go our way. It's the letting go for people to be the way we want them to be. It's the letting go of conditions having to be a certain way in this moment. And that aversive response we have of forcing the world or the moment to adapt to our immediate preference. So it has to do with preferences and backing off a little bit of preferences and watching how when the mind only attends to trying to get its preferences met, it leads to suffering. It leads to significant dukkha. So in meditation, we practice equanimity. We learn to tolerate the little things. We learn to be courageous in the face of discontent. And we learn to open our hearts and to let it all in. We invite, as they say, Mara to tea. We allow the dukkha in and we try to accept it. Now, two more things I wanted to mention uh, before we share, which is it's important to know that equanimity does not mean we let people walk all over us. It does not mean that we don't say no. It doesn't mean we don't have healthy boundaries. If something is unjust, unskillful, unhealthy, we lay down that boundary of no, that's still okay. Equanimity is designed to lean into the moment so we can understand its nature so then we can take whatever actions we need to decrease the suffering and the stress. 
So it's important to know that the primary reason that we lean into this moment that's discontented is so we can understand its nature. So we can see how am I participating in this moment? How can I then lay down healthier boundaries? How can I then say what needs to be said or breathe in a different way or talk in a different way? How can I participate in this moment differently now that I've embraced it as happening and brought equanimity? We bring equanimity so we can understand what's actually happening in the present moment. So then if we do need to take firmer a firmer stance against something that's harmful, we can then do that skillful with wisdom and compassion. So we always want to remember that equanimity is not passive in that way. Equanimity is leaning into what's happening and then trying to figure out ways to skillfully transcend the dukkha. Another thing about equanimity is it can lead to significant spiritual bypass when it's applied to larger systems of injustice. I've heard people say in response to social injustice, oh, we should just be equanimous, right? We should just, oh, it's just arising and passing away. Systemic injustice does not just arise and pass away. <laughs> it is not, that's not what equanimity means in that context. So we have to be careful when we look at someone who's in a situation or if we're in a situation on either end of that injustice, equanimity is not an excuse to not participate when we see things not being healthy for ourselves and others. So I just really want to clarify that because equanimity can be misunderstood and seen as the antithesis when social inequities are there. It's easy for someone to say, well, our job is just to watch it and to be passive. And that's, that's not really true, uh, even in the Dharma. So keep that in mind as you, as you practice your um, equanimity. So that was just the review. I just wanted to get us all in, back in the dialogue. Last week we ended abruptly because I had just talked a bunch and we didn't have time to share. So I wanted to bring us back around with the sharing um, today. And um, I will start off by sharing one thing. And then if other folks would like to jump in, I would love to hear how equanimity went for you this week. If you weren't here last week, doesn't matter. Share how equanimity works in your life. Talk about something that's workable, a trick, a trip, some kind of thing that helps you or you can share a struggle with equanimity. Where do you lose the balance of your mind? So the one thing I wanted to share with you was that I, on Saturday, I went downstairs and um, it was beautiful. Sun was out. And so I opened the windows and I got this little area ready. I was going to do some studying and um, I had my tea and my flashcards and I opened the windows and sit down and I start studying and our neighbor starts up the lawnmower right as I get in this position where I really felt content and I was like, oh, a beautiful spring day. And so initially I was like, oh, you know, lawnmower, spring sound is no big deal. But then it just kept getting louder and I felt like, like she wasn't just mowing the yard. She was like mowing the inside of my brain. And like, it was just like so loud that I could not, I couldn't get it out. It was just so like, I don't know, offensive <laughs> and aversive. And so I thought, oh, for Wednesday wake up, I should really take an opportunity to see if I can bring equanimity to this moment. So what I did was based on some of the tools I was mentioning last week. The first thing I did was bring awareness to the body. And there was definitely a contraction. The sound of the lawnmower was very aversive and I could feel that sense of withdrawal. And I wasn't able to relax. I was trying to relax and it was like really physically, the vibration and the sound was so loud because it's right. it was right next to my window. Um, so I really leaned into the, the discontent um, and acknowledged that this was happening. And I kept going back to kind of my studies to see if I could just be present with what I was focusing on, which I could not do. 
It was so loud. So then the negative thoughts started to arise, which was, what is this person doing? I can't believe they're like mowing the lawn right now, right? Because it's a bad time for me. So of course, why would they be doing it when it's a bad time for me? That just made no sense to my mind that was fully in the midst of aversion. So I had these thoughts that kept coming up of how disrespectful it was that someone else chose to mow their lawn when I wanted quiet, quiet time. And I could watch the thoughts and then I'm really good at catastrophizing. So then my thoughts were, oh, this is going to ruin my whole day. It's like a beautiful spring day and here's this noise pollution and this just really sucks and I'm not going to be able to get any equanimity. So I wrestle with this for quite a bit, but as I wrestle with it, I was able to calm myself down and get back into the groove of studying. And then there was a moment where I intuitively got up without thinking almost aggressively to shut the window because I didn't want the sound anymore. And I caught myself in the midst of the aversion shutting the window. And then I decided, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to try to really just be with this. And about 10 minutes after that, I completely forgot about it. And I got into the groove of my present moment experience and did my thing. So I just wanted to share with you that sort of battle that we go through when things are distressing and we're intolerant, how the mind creates these aversive thoughts and these stories that it tells, how the body contracts for things that we don't like. And we, we battle this intolerance because we're tra we've trained our minds to be so averse to things. Now, granted, a lawnmower is loud and can be very annoying. Um, but in this case, I really had an opportunity to be with my meditation practice. And it was tremendously helpful, especially when I realized that 20 minutes later, even though I could hear it, it was still, I was okay. I was it did not disrupt um, after a while, and I was able to successfully cultivate equanimity after a minor war took place um, in my heart uh, and blaming this person for ruining my day. So that is my example of practicing equanimity this week. So thank you again for your attendance and your kind participation, and congratulations on keeping with the path and being persistent and courageous and kind to yourselves and your intention to be kind to others is remarkable and this is what the world needs and this is where that hope and that transformation occurs right here in this room as we work on this together and share our practice together in Sangha. This is where the transformation really occurs. Um, so thank you for being here with me tonight. Let's send us off with some well-wishing for ourselves and others and get comfortable. Take a second to come back to the body We've been together for an hour or so, 90 minutes. Just check back in with the body. How does it feel now? 45 minutes, 50 minutes, an hour and a half later. What's happened to the body in all that time? All the in-breaths, all the out-breaths. The talking, the listening, the reflecting, the being with each other. May all beings share in the merits of our practice. We come together each week in Sangha to share our successes, to delight in our struggles, to talk about the reality of dukkha, to talk about the reality and possibility of cultivating compassion and joy, mindfulness and equanimity. We always practice for ourselves so we can be free 
So everyone that we touch in our lives can also be free. So everyone can share in the merits of our openness, in our courage, in our patience and persistence. May all beings share in our joy and our love. During this time of chaos and crisis and unpredictability, we can show up in the world with equanimity. We can show up with discernment and wisdom. We can choose to wait and hold the space in equanimity, allow ourselves to act with love and compassion, and really be role models for that in the world at a time when it is so needed. May all beings share in this practice the merits of our love and compassion. And may all beings be safe and free from harm. Those who are out there in the world caring for others, may they be safe. May they be rested. And as always, an extra shout out to the caregivers and medical professionals who are out there helping everybody. May they be free from suffering. May we feel a sense of gratitude for those folks who are showing so much courage in the face of all of this. May they be free from suffering. Be safe and well, my friends. Next week is, again, the end of another month and the beginning of a new month. So reflect this week on your practice. Next week, um, as always, we'll be doing a little bit of sharing on, on those kinds of things. And I'm planning on doing a little bit more in-depth um, talk about uh, journaling and reflection and some studies on how we do that. So, several people have asked for some more details, so I'm going to prepare something for us for next week. Uh, until then, give a shout out if you need it. Um, Molly put up the Acceptiva link. Be safe, be well. Let me know if you need anything. Until then, we'll see you next week.